Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tony Rikers. Good evening, friends. Welcome once again to a presentation in the final events of Bible prophecy. Our topic tonight is in search for the true church. What a question that is, in search for the true true church. What a quest that would be to find out about the true church of God. Does God have a true church? Why is there so many denominations in our world today? That's a question that's asked by thousands of people around the world. Why so many denominations? You know, people choose a church today. They go to a church because maybe that church is a popular church. Everybody goes to the church they'll all go to. Maybe they choose a church because, well, it's, it's their family church. They've been born into that church. Maybe it's just a handy church. It's up around the corner. It's easy to get to. Maybe it's a huge church. Sometimes they, yeah, there's people in that world, they like going to what they call mega churches, where there's not just hundreds, but there's thousands of people. But friends, why should we choose a church? Why is there so many churches? Wouldn't it be easier if there was just one church? Today, people are totally confused as to know which church to join. People are totally confused at why there's so many religious movements around the world today. And they come to the conclusion, well, they think, well, look, there's so many churches, there's so many religions, there must be many paths and there's one heaven and we'll all get there in the end. You've probably heard that before. But friends, does God have a true church? Does God have many churches or does he have a church? You know, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 gives us a clue that God doesn't have hundreds of religions and hundreds of churches. It says in Ephesians 4 and verse 5 that there is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one baptism. Is there a true church? If so, which one is it? Now, of course, friends, everybody believes, of course, everybody believes that their church is the true church. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why, why would you be going to a church if you didn't think it was a true church? Why would you go to a church and say, I believe the church up the road is a true church, but I'm going to go here? If you knew there was a true church, you would go to that true church. And everybody believes their church is the true church. And tonight, friends, this lecture is going to be a challenge, not only to you, but also to me. Every one of us in this room tonight, we will be challenged. Let me assure you of that. Because we're going to find that God is raising up in these last days a people and he calls them the remnant. Now, everybody believes their church is, of course, the true church. And you've probably come to the realization through this series of meetings that I myself am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Cornerstone Ministries is not a Seventh-day Adventist ministry in the sense that it's not supported by the Seventh-day Adventist church. But as a Christian, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, he's just going to tell us that his church is the true church. That's what you're thinking, isn't it, friends? You're thinking he's just going to tell us, well, his church is a true church because that's why he goes there. But friends, listen to me tonight. It is not at this point so much an issue of being connected with a church, but an issue of being connected with Jesus Christ and the truth. Everything we have been covering in previous lectures is dealing with truth versus error. Truth versus error. Friends, tonight, first and foremost, God wants you to be connected to the truth, not just a church building. You know, too many make the mistake in our world today. They go to the church to find the truth. We don't go to the church to find the truth. 
Notice this statement on the screen. I like this. It says, as an eternal principle, you do not go to the church to find the truth. You go to the Bible to find the truth. And when you find the truth, you look for a church that teaches the truth. Doesn't that make sense, friends? Doesn't it make sense? You and I should go to the Bible to find the truth. And when you and I find the truth, then we should look for a church that teaches the truth. Because to be the true church of God, in our quest for the search for the true church, to be the true church of God, my friends, you must have a foundation of truth. Without the foundation of truth, you can't be the true church of God. It's as simple as that. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 tells us very clearly about the true church. It says, The church of the living God... The pillar and ground of the truth. Friends, the foundation for being the true church of God, the church not of just God, but the living God, the church of the living God, my friends, has a foundation, foundation, and that foundation is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Friends, if you do not have the truth in your church, you're simply not the true church. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that an honest thing to say? It's not a matter of how big your church is or how fantastic the worship is or how great the musicians or the preachers are. The foundation of the church of God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Friends, there are good and bad in every church, including my own church. There's a rotten apple in every basket, isn't there? But the point of this lecture tonight, friends, the point of this lecture tonight is to reveal that God right now around this world is gathering together a people in these last days, that will stand as a united front and be faithful to Jesus Christ. God is gathering today a people that are going to come together and stand as a united front against the beast and the mark of the beast and the powers of Satan. How? By living and upholding the truth. And friends, this lecture tonight is in no wise an attack against other churches or against other Christians. Every church around this world has faithful, God-fearing Christians that love the Lord. It's not an attack upon churches or upon Christians, but it is a challenge for every one of us tonight to come into line with the remnant church of God in these last days. And friends, as I've been stating night after night through this series of meetings, at the end it's going to be very easy. There will be but two groups. And at the end of time, friends, the Bible is going to show us tonight, there will be but two universal churches two churches there isn't going to be hundreds the whole world friends is going to polarize into one of two groups and these two groups these two churches are found in the book of revelation one's found in revelation 12 the other is found in revelation chapter 17 and they're symbolized by women you know as you go into the bible and you start studying bible prophecy you discover that a woman represents a church in Bible prophecy. In Revelation chapter 12, there's a, a delicate, comely woman. In Revelation chapter 17, there is a woman dressed like a harlot. She's called a whore. These represent two churches at the end of time. Now, before we go any further, let's just prove that a woman in Bible prophecy represents a church. You know, Jesus Christ himself, as he walked the earth, he often referred to himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. His church was the bride, the woman. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2, it says, I have likened Zion to a comely and delicate woman. So Zion is like a comely and delicate woman. Now, of course, who is Zion? 
Zion is the church, God's people. Isaiah 51 verse 16 tells us that. Zion, thou art my people. So the church is like a comely and a delicate woman. It's God's bride. And this church is symbolized by a woman. Yeah, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul said something very interesting to the church at Corinth. He said this, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's saying to the church at Corinth, I've espoused you to one husband, that's Jesus Christ. I want you to be a pure bride. You see, friends, the woman represents the church. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8 also gives us a clue about the woman being the bride of Christ in the church of God. Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it says, For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Here we find that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is getting married and his wife has made herself ready. Herself, it's a woman, obviously. And who is the woman? It's the saints. That's God's church, friends. A woman in Bible prophecy is very clearly represented a church, represents a church. Now, in Revelation, we have two women. Two women are brought to view. Two churches. One is a faithful woman. One is a harlot woman. We are going to identify both of these churches tonight. As I said, there will be two churches at the end. It's going to be real easy for you and I to choose. Two universal movements taking place in the world. We are now going to identify the first woman. And we're going to work on, for a start, the one found in Revelation chapter 17, the harlot church. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, it describes this woman for us. Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, the Bible reads, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, <clears throat> and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So here we see this woman, this church that's being brought to view. The Bible tells us she's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's decked out with gold and, and jewels and pearls. The Bible says she's a whore. And the Bible says she's got this golden cup in her hand and she's dishing out the wine from that cup to the world. Now, what is the name of this false church? What name does the Bible give to this false church? Notice now verse 5, Revelation 17, verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Notice, my friends, tonight the Bible tells you and I that the name of this false church is what? Mystery Babylon the Great. Mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This is the great system of, of the mystery system of Babylon. 
Now, what is the attitude? What is the attitude of this false church towards the true church? Let's look now in verse 6, Revelation 17, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Here we find this false church has been drunken with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, this church persecutes the true church of God. It's a persecuting church. Now, of course, the question we've got to ask ourselves, friends, is simply this. Who is this false church of Revelation chapter 17? Well, friends, you and I, we all know who this church is. We have covered this in our previous lectures. It's none other than the Roman Catholic Church. Not the people, but the system. We have shown in previous lectures at least 13 identifying marks that tell us that this is the system, the great Antichrist system of Bible prophecy. And here in Revelation chapter 17, God is just giving us more identifying marks of who this power is. Notice a few of these points that we've been through in Revelation 17 verses 1 to 5. The first point was that this system, this church, is arrayed in purple and scarlet. You know, friends, some of the chief colours of the papacy is what? It's purple and scarlet, isn't it? The second point was that this system, this church, was decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. You know, the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest system in the world today is the Roman Catholic system. The wealth of the Vatican is enormous and some experts say in terms of finance that she is the most powerful in the world, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. The third point we learned there in Revelation 17 verses 1 to 5 is that this will be a universal church. The word Catholic actually means universal. The reason why it has to be a universal church is because back there in verse 2 of Revelation 17, it says that the king's and the whole world is drunk with her wine. It's a worldwide system affecting the entire world. They're drunk with the wine that comes out of the golden cup. Another point we saw there, point four, was that this system was drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. And we've covered in our previous lectures, we have seen in our previous nights that between 50 and 150 million people have been put to death as a result of this system, particularly through the Dark Ages. Thousands upon thousands have lost their life. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus, friends. The next point is a very interesting one. Point number five here of one of our identifying marks that Revelation 17 gave us. It tells us that this system had a name, and the name was Mystery Babylon the Great. She is called, point five, she is called Babylon the Great. Now, how does the name Babylon the Great fit into the Roman system? Mystery Babylon the Great. When one studies the symbology of ancient Babylon, we find that the Roman system is just a continuation of the ancient pagan world of Babylon and the ancient pagan world at large. Many years ago, there was a man, Dr. Alexander Hislop, and he wrote a book called The Two Babylons. And in that book, he says this, summarizing the whole point. Now, in the book, The Two Babylons, what he is doing, he's comparing ancient Babylon and the ancient pagan world, and he's showing that modern Babylon, the Roman system, the Roman church, is exactly the same. Notice his statement from his book on pages 2 and 3. He says that the paganism 
which Rome has baptized is, in all its essential features, the very paganism which prevailed in the ancient Babylon. The essential character of her system, the grand objects of her worship, her festivals, her doctrine and discipline, her rites and ceremonies, her priesthood and their orders have all been derived from ancient Babylon. And you know, friends, when you and I look at the artwork, at the dress, at the imagery that we see in the Roman system, Alexander Hislop was exactly right because what takes place in the church today, it all stems from ancient Babylon and the ancient pagan world. This is why, friends, it's called Babylon the Great. It's really a continuation of the same system. For example, I want to give you a few examples tonight before we go past this point. If we go into the ancient world, we find the sun god was a big god. If you go into the imagery and the architecture of the ancient world, we find that there were sun symbols all through it. On the screen, we're going to compare different, different parts of ancient Babylon now with modern Babylon and show how they're exactly the same. For example, on the screen, we find here some pictures of the ancient gods, sun gods in the ancient world. But friends, when you and I now go into the modern Babylon, the Roman system, we find through its artwork and architecture the same sun symbols. For example, on the screen, there's a sun with a face. This sun face is huge, and it's above the pulpit in a Scandinavian church. We find here the uh, sunburst dome, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, many of these big domes that were placed on top of the, the uh, cathedrals and churches were designed to be like a sunburst because from the ancient world, the worship of the sun was one of the main gods. We find now in modern Babylon, the same imagery, the sun imagery comes right through. You notice on the screen here, this picture of, which is an amazing picture really, a picture of the woman and she's holding, she's nestling, not Jesus Christ, but she's nestling a literal sun. You see, friends, the system is all revolving around sun worship and nature worship and the pagan rites of the ancient world. Here we have the woman, the church, but not nestling Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. She's nestling in her bosom a sun god. On the other side of that screen is another picture of, of, uh, of, of sun worship. Here we find a picture of St. Peter's throne in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And if you notice this massive throne, it's revolved around the, basically the setting of the sun. It's a sun throne. Here we see a picture of the Pope's coat of arms. It's a sun symbol, same as in the ancient world. Here we find a statue. It's called the Golden Child. It's in the Vatican Treasury at Rome. What's it got? It's a sunburst. It's a sun symbol. Here we find on the screen a, a picture that's very interesting. If you look very closely at this picture, you'll find this photo of the papal palace with the Pope at the window of his apartment. If you look along the top of the building, right at the top of the photograph, you'll notice the decorative work above the window is full of sun symbols, sun images. Another point that uh, is very interesting also in comparing ancient Babylon with modern Babylon, if you look at the picture on the screen here and look at it very closely, you'll see it's a stone laver from ancient Assyria, which is now in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Carved on its sides are depictions of pagan priests that appear to be half sunfish and half man that are sprinkling holy water. In the ancient world, the, the fish god was a big thing. Now, part of the fish god attire was the fish mitre. 
You notice here on the screen also another picture of Dagon, the fish god, and other pagan gods in fish attire. They would wear this fish attire, as it were, and part of the symbolic language of it all was the fish head mitre. And as you go now into the papacy, you find something very interesting. If you look at what the high officials of the Catholic Church wear, they wear these funny sort of hats, which are actually fish head mitres, which are exactly the same as come from the ancient pagan world. Nothing's changed. Here we see on the screen, pagan-type croziers, supposed to be sort of shepherd staffs, as they were. In the pagan world, they were right through the pagan world. Of course, if you go into the modern Babylon, you find the same croziers are used today. In fact, serpent croziers were commonly carried by bishops and high Catholic officials in the Middle Ages. They had serpents on them. Here we see on the screen a picture of the Assyrian god, one of the Assyrian gods, And you'll notice if you look very closely in the hand of this Assyrian god is a picture of a pine cone. He's holding a pine cone. Here you'll see another picture of a Babylonian god holding a pine cone in the same way. The idea of this was to keep away the evil spirits. If you go into Egypt, we see the pine cone staff of Osiris. If we go into the Hindu world, the Hindu images carried pine cones. Here we see on the screen a picture of a hand from a pagan sun-worshipping cult. And if you look closely at this, uh, this hand, you find on the thumb of the hand is what? It's a pine cone. Mexican gods had pine cones, which was a symbol of the sun and rebirth and fertility. But the largest pine cone in the world is actually found in the court of the pine cone at the Vatican. It's an enormous statue of a pine cone. The same imagery that's in the pagan world we find now in modern Babylon, that just as Dr. Alexander Hislop said, right through the whole system. On the screen is a, is a uh, photograph there of the Pope. If you look very closely at the staff that he is holding, you find beneath the cross of Christ is a pine cone. There's some more photographs there of the pine cone, another Pope and another picture of the pine cone through the symbolic language and imagery of the Roman system. This is a statue of the Pope here, one of the older popes. It's a bit hard to see, but if you look closely on his chest, you'll notice that there are three pine cones. The same as it was in ancient Babylon is the same as it is now in modern Babylon. In the ancient world, they used to carry around their gods on thrones. Their gods were their kings and their queens and their pharaohs. And they would display them and they would carry them around on thrones as the picture on the screen shows you. And of course, we see in modern Babylon, the Pope gets carried around exactly the same. Not just as a man, but gets carried around as if he were a god. Another point that's interesting, if you look at the screen there, you'll notice some ancient pagan prayer beads. They used to use these in the pagan world, but of course, we come into the modern Babylon, we find the same prayer beads are being used. They're called rosary beads in the Catholic system. They're in ancient Babylon, and now we find them in modern Babylon, exactly the same. On the screen is a photograph there. Take a close look at that photograph. <clears throat> On the tiara of this Babylonian wing god, there is a, what is known as a fleur-de-lis. It's that little knob thing on top of the, uh, the picture there. We find this same symbol right through again through the modern Babylonian world. On the picture there is a, a, uh, on the screen there's a picture from the, uh, the Vatican. If you look very closely in the middle of that bit of artwork there is the same symbols of fleur de lis right there in the Vatican as well. 
on the screen, there's, a more, there's some more pictures there about uh, the, the tiara. You know, the, the Pope wears a triple crowned or a triple mitred tiara. The triple part means that he's ruler of heaven and the earth and the lower regions. But in the ancient world, the ancient pagan gods wore a triple crowned tiara as well. On the screen again, there's another symbol there, a photograph of some symbols at least, of ancient pagan sun symbols. If you look closely, you'll see these different pagan sun symbols were usually a circle with some sort of shape of a cross in the middle. If you look closely at those sun symbols on the screen and then look at the next picture of the papacy and the Pope with his mass, it's the exact same sun symbols on the front of the altar of this picture. If you look at the Pope's mitre here very closely, right in the centre, we see the exact same sun symbol on the mitre of the Pope. In the ancient world, we saw it. In the modern world of Babylon, we see the same thing. Now look very closely at this next picture. This next picture is very interesting. This next picture is a depiction of the pagan kings on an ancient standing stone, and it shows a strip of cloth called a laplet that hangs from the rear of the, uh, the headgear of the, of the king or the god. Can you notice that little bit of laplet, that bit of cloth that hangs from the back? If you look also very closely at this image, on its hand, there is a symbol of the sun, a sun symbol on the hand on this image as well. Now, there's a laplet and there's a, uh, an image of the sun on the hand of this Babylonian god here. Now, have a look at these next pictures. On the Pope's mitre and the Pope's tiara are the same laplets, the same bit of cloth that comes off the back as it was on these ancient pagan gods. And also notice a picture on here on the, uh, on the screen of, this, of uh, the Pope here. He has his tiara on. He has his laplets coming off the back. But notice on his hand, it's the exact same sun symbol that was on that ancient standing stone of the pagan Babylonian god. The exact same imagery, imagery friends, is going right through the system. Here we see another photograph of the fish head mitres. All those fish head mitres have that same cloth, that laplet that comes off the back of those, those mitres. Notice also the picture of the Pope on the screen there with his mitre. And on his collar, you'll notice on his collar, there's a symbol there. It's like a cross that's flared out at the ends to make a circle. This same picture is seen in the ancient Babylonian world. Notice also this picture here of this Neo-Assyrian standing stone. This dates from about 824 BC, and it depicts, depicts sorry, a king... And notice the necklace that he is wearing around his neck. It's the exact same image that we just saw on the Pope's necklace, the Pope's collar. It's the picture of a, of a, of a cross-type um, image, but the cross flares out at the ends so it can make it in, into a circle. And if we look at the next photographs, we see the exact same image on the Pope and also on this priest as we saw on this ancient pagan king. What about sun disks? You know, when you look at the artwork of the, the Catholic system, for some reason, they always have like this halo or this, this, this sun disk behind their head. That's what it is. It's a sun disk. It's not a halo. There's nowhere in the Bible where it talks about the apostles or Jesus or Mary or anybody else walking around with halos over their head. In the ancient world, it was a symbol of the sun god. And we find all the artwork has these halos or these, these sun disks behind the heads of the so-called saints in Jesus. In the ancient world, pagan solar wheels were a very big thing. 
And you look at the, uh, the Catholic system today and we look in our world today and the largest solar wheel in the world is in the court of the Vatican. If you look closely at those photographs, you'll see the entire court of the Vatican is one enormous solar wheel. Friends, it's all from pagan origin. It's all from ancient Babylon and it's come into the church today has been so-called Christianized. But friends, that's why the Bible says that this system is called Babylon the Great because it's a continuation of the same system of Babylon. On the screen there we find an Egyptian obelisk, of course, in St. Peter's Square in the middle of that great big solar wheel. We find an obelisk as well. These are all pagan symbols, friends. I mean, this, I could go on for another hour on all these different symbols. But friends, this system is none other than Babylon the Great. God is identifying to you and I clearer and clearer and clearer evidence that this system is the one that he is identifying and is warning us to stay away from. The sixth point from Revelation chapter 17 is that this system is the mother of harlots. You know, friends, the Roman Catholic Church is the only church that calls herself the mother. She calls herself the mother church. The reason why she calls herself the mother church is because most of, if not all of, the Protestant denominations broke off from the Roman system and she calls them her daughters, disobedient daughters, but they're nevertheless her daughters. She is called the mother. But the Bible calls this system Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Why is she called the mother of harlots? I mean, if she's a mother, we've got to ask ourselves, well, who are the daughters? If the mother is a church, obviously the daughters must somewhere, somehow be churches as well. Wouldn't that make sense? Her daughters, friends, she is the mother, but her daughters are those churches who are still holding on to her teachings and her doctrines. They are still drinking from the golden cup that she's dishing up to the world. And this, my friends, classes them as the daughters of Babylon. And you must ask yourself tonight, well, is my church holding on to the doctrines that were forged in Babylon? And is my church, therefore, by default, a daughter of Babylon? You see, friends, the word Babylon simply means confusion. It comes from the ancient Tower of Babel. In the ancient Tower of Babel, they decided to start their own religion and God confounded the languages. The ancient Tower of Babel was the foundation for the system of Babylon and that word Babel means confusion. Babylon means, it means confusion. And today, friends, as we look at our world today, our churches, we are finding that the world and the churches of the world, they are confused and the reason why they are confused is because they are drunk Remember Revelation chapter 17 verse 2, the Bible told us there that the world was drunk. Notice this verse again, Revelation 17 verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You see, friends, this church has a golden cup. It's full of wine. The Bible's telling us that the inhabitants of the world, the kings of the world, they've been made drunk because she's been dishing up the wine and the world has been drinking it. Now, of course, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is the wine? What is the wine that's coming from the golden cup that's causing confusion, that's causing Babylon and confusing the world? What does the wine represent? Now, if you look at what the wine represents, we find the wine represents its teachings and its doctrines. 
And we go back to the story of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ was just before he was crucified the night before. He instituted what we call the Last Supper. In the Last Supper, something interesting takes place. Notice Matthew 26, verse 27 to 28. And he, Jesus, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, the disciples, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. At the Last Supper, he takes that cup. He takes the cup. He says to the disciples, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for, the, for many for the remission of sins. And he hands that cup to the disciples. He said, drink all of it. Don't drink half. Don't sip at it. Drink ye all of the cup. You know, friends, that cup represents the cup of salvation. In that cup, symbolically speaking, was the teachings and the doctrines and the plan of salvation that Jesus Christ was offering to the world. And he says to the world, take the cup and drink ye all of it. But what takes place in our world today, friends, is many drink from the cup of Christ, but they just sip the cup. And they go to Babylon and they sip the cup of Babylon and they're confused. The churches of our world are confused because they're drinking from two cups. Yeah, the Bible tells us in Psalm 116 verse 13, it says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Friends, God wants us to take the cup of salvation. He wants us to drink all of it. That cup of salvation is his teachings, his doctrines, his truth, his plan of salvation. But the Bible also tells us that the devil has a cup. The devil has a cup as well. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 21, notice what the Bible says here. It says, Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils you see friends too many in our world today in the christian churches they're partaking of the cup of the lord but they're partaking of the cup of devils as well they're sipping from babylon and they're sipping from the lord but the lord says take the cup of salvation and drink ye all of that cup and because they're sipping from the cup of babylon they're drunk with her wine her teachings her false doctrines and there is confusion in the church there is confusion in the world and many churches today are referred to as the daughters of Babylon because, friends, they're drinking from the wrong cup. They're drinking from Babylon's doctrines. They're holding on to the doctrines of Babylon or the Roman system. They've never fully broken away from the apostasy and the falsehood that was forged in the Roman Catholic Church and therefore they are still classed as daughters with Babylon. Therefore, we have confusion in our Christian world. Yeah, friends, there's confusion in our Christian world tonight, isn't there? If you were to go to different churches and to ask them what they believe, what is their cup? There's all these sorts of cups. There's all these doctrines, all these truths, so-called, all over the place. They're all different. Have you noticed that, friend? Have you noticed the confusion in this system today? But God has a plan. God has a plan tonight, my friend, and that plan and that message is to dispel the confusion, to dispel the darkness, and that message is found in Revelation chapter 14. It is the three angels' messages. We've been going through that message night after night in different avenues. Let's look at that message again tonight because this message has been designed by God to call his people back to the right cup of salvation. 
Revelation 14, verse 6, the Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. This is the first angel's message. Having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Here is a call to the world and to the people of God scattered through Babylon. It's a call to preach the three angels' messages. It's a call to preach the everlasting gospel. Not a gospel, but the everlasting gospel. Friends, there's only one. It's a call to come back to the worship of the Creator God. A call to come back to the memorial of creation, the Sabbath. It's a call to the Christian world. The judgment has begun. We saw that last night. It's a call to come back to obedience to the law of God. The second angel's message in Revelation 14 verse 8 says this, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The call of the second angel's message to the churches around this world today and to the people of God in Babylon is a call to separate themselves from Babylon, from the confusion, from the darkness, from the corruption of false religion. It's a call to have no part with apostasy. It's a call to have no part with anything that will distort the gospel of Christ or obscure the truth as it's found in Jesus Christ. It's a call to leave the false teachings and expose the false teachings of this corrupt system called Babylon. And of course, the third angel's message, we know it so well. Revelation 14, verse 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Here is that famous message going to the world. It's exposing who the beast is. And of course, we've seen in our previous lectures that this beast power is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy, which is the Roman system. It's a warning to the world about the mark of the beast, which is Sunday and Sunday legislation. And according to Revelation 14, verse 8, friends, God's message today for every one of us is to come out from fallen Babylon, to leave the falsehood behind, to leave the false doctrines behind, to come back to the pillar and the ground of truth, back to the word of God, and not to the traditions of men. Sola Scriptura is to be the foundation of our faith, not the teachings of man. And the warning of Revelation 14 is repeated in Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. The good news tonight, friends, is this, that God has his people in Babylon. He has his people through the entire Christian denominations of this world. But the call of God tonight, friends, in the last hour of this earth's history is to come out of her, my people. Leave the falsehood. Leave the false doctrines. Stop drinking from the wrong cup and take the cup of salvation and drink ye all of it, Jesus said. That, my friend, is the call of God to our hearts tonight. God is, God is calling his people to come back to him, to come out of fallen churches, out of confusion, out of falsehood, 
But friends, when God calls you out, when he's calling all of us out, guess what God does? He also calls us in. Into what? Friends, he's calling us into the true church of God. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit cornerstone-ministries.org. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. Join us next time as we continue this program in search for the true church presented by Tony Rikers.
To the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last.
on the history of the Reformation from lynchjourney.com. The French Reformation in the 16th century was not a smooth sailing. There was strong tension and conflict between the Protestants and Catholics, and in the latter part of the century, there were several wars between the two. In the 1530s, there was growing frustration as they saw their dream being fulfilled elsewhere in Germany and Switzerland. And yet in France, they were lagging behind. In order to advance their cause, it was thought they needed to strike a bold blow to Rome and attack one of the most controversial topics, the mass. 
A tract was written. Many believe that Farrell wrote it in Switzerland, though others say that Antoine de Marcourt wrote it. The tract was entitled True Articles on the Horrible, Great, and Intolerable Abuses of the Popish Mass, invented in direct opposition to the Holy Supper of our Lord and only Mediator and Savior. The leaders of the French movement met to discuss how to use it, and some felt it was too strong and direct, and that to use it would cause more harm than good. Others thought that it was okay, and when it was taken to a vote, it was decided to use it. They were distributed all over France, to every city, town, and even villages, and it was decided that on October the 24th, 1534, at night, they would be posted all over France. However, instead of advancing the Reformation, this zealous and ultimately ill-judged action brought ruin, not only on those who had posted the placards, but on the Reformed or Protestant faith throughout France. One of the placards was posted on the king's personal chamber, and in his rage he said, let all be seized without distinction who are suspected of heresy, and I will exterminate all. The leaders of the Roman church had what they had longed for, a reason to wipe out the Protestants. Some poor adherent of the reformed faith was seized and commanded to show the papers all the homes of the believers in Paris, and under the threat of death, he cowardly went along and betrayed his people. They walked through the streets of Paris and grabbed people from their homes, imprisoning them before trying, torturing, and killing them. Hundreds of people fled Paris, people from all ranks of life. University professors, princes, artisans, and the Catholic Church were surprised to find how many Protestants had been living in Paris unknown to themselves. The leading French reformers would have to leave, finding refuge in Geneva, Switzerland, and it was from there that they would send pastors back into France, so that in the space of 40 years, there were perhaps 2 million Huguenot Protestants and 1,250 churches throughout France. Saint Bartholomew's massacre would deal another blow to the church in France, and again, many people would leave France. At this persecution and subsequent ones that would follow, each time France would lose their skilled tradesmen and craftsmen, suffering a brain drain that they had caused on themselves. The Swiss watchmaking industry was built largely by French Huguenot Protestants who fled there. One thing that we learned from this episode of history is that it's as important that we know when to say something and how to say something as it is that we say the right thing. Simply speaking the truth is not enough. The placards that were posted might have contained the truth about the mass and correctly pointed out the erroneous beliefs, but the way in which it was done was ill-judged and caused more harm than good. May we be wise in how we share the truths of God's word, sensitive to what others believe, and always aim to be winsome in our methods and our words.
more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. How would someone describe you with just one word? And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. One day, a theologian was asked to describe Jesus using just one word, and he chose the word relaxed. How might God be calling you to relax? Perhaps by releasing control over a situation, or maybe by choosing not to stress over things that don't really matter. Maybe by slowing down in order to connect with someone you typically would have missed due to your rush lifestyle is what God's calling you to today. Whatever it is, write it down so that you'll remember. And find time today to enjoy the relationships that God has blessed you with. So today, take a moment to think about how you can relax in your day in order to spend time with God and family. And remember, live your faith and have a blessed day. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.